October 31st marks an important date in the life of God's church. Because it was on that date, on the 31st of October in the year 1517, that an obscure German monk by the name of Martin Luther took the opportunity to post some grievances that he was having with the Roman Catholic Church with regard to the issue of indulgences. Luther wrote out 95 points of discussion and disagreement that he was having with the official Catholic Church doctrine at that time, and he nailed them onto the door of the church at Wittenberg, Germany. That sounds, from our point of view, to be a pretty radical thing to do, but in his day and age, that was actually the town bulletin board, and so he was merely posting them there publicly for people to read and interact with him about these grievances. We also know that Luther really wasn't intending to begin the firestorm that was created from this event because he posted the grievances in Latin, not German. Latin was the official theological language of his day. So the grievances he posted were for the academic community, those that worked in theological Latin and could interact with him over that. But in the great providence of God, these grievances, these 95 theses, were taken by someone and quickly translated into German and then disseminated throughout the empire. Sixty years approximately before that, in the providence of God, Johann Gutenberg had invented the movable type printing press, which then made the publication and uh, printing of documents possible, at least at some kind of an economical basis. And so Luther's 95 Thesis, quickly translated into German from theological Latin, were printed up and overnight they were distributed far and wide and all historians agree that that particular event that day, October 31st, 1517, marks the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. But what would compel an obscure monk to take on the full weight and might of the Holy Roman Empire? What would it take in the soul of a man to stand up against all authority and to say, you are wrong? Luther had been possessed of God. He had been set free from the bondage to sin. And with that Setting free, he had escaped the overwhelming dread that haunted his life up to that time. Dread of the wrath of God. As a monk, Luther would regularly spend six hours a day in the confessional. He would pour out his heart to his confessor. Every thought word and deed that he could possibly remember, he would pour out in confession and receive absolution. Hours and hours on end he would do this. 
And then he would get up and he would leave the confessional, confessional and soon after he would remember something that he had forgotten to confess before. And so he'd be back again to the point where his authorities, his spiritual superiors, thought he was a gold bricker. They thought he didn't want to work and thus he would hide out in the confessional. But that was not true. Luther was absolutely possessed with a dread of God and his wrath. You see, because Luther understood that man's problem was not just in what he did or what he thought or what he said. Man's problem was fundamentally deeper than that, more deadly than that. Man's problem fundamentally lies at the fact that he is defiled in his very nature. That he is a sinner separated from God, lacking true righteousness, and thus residing under the condemnation of a holy and dreadful judge. Someone once asked Luther, Martin, do you love God? He said, love God. At times I hate God. Because all I see is a judge who will condemn me. How was Luther set free? What set this man free? It was him coming to an understanding that the righteousness which man both needs and lacks, true and essential righteousness, comes from God to him by grace through faith alone. And when Luther grabbed the hold of that profound reality, his heart was set free. The Gospel tore open the gates of prison that had bound his soul. The dread of the wrath of God was lifted from him and like a bird liberated from his cage, he sprang forth to light a match that inflamed the world. The recovery of the Gospel. It is the crosswork of Jesus Christ that sets aside the wrath of God. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Romans 3, verses 21 and 26, as we come to our final message on this section of the Scripture, the very heart of the Gospel. If you're using one of those pew Bibles, you'll want to open it up to page 1128, and you will arrive at Romans Chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. We have been working away here on this text. This is our fourth message on these short verses because these verses are so power-packed, so loaded with essential gospel truth. It's all tucked in here. And so we have been slowly peeling it back like layers of an onion to see and reveal the beauty of the gospel bound up in these verses. In these verses, we have noted there are six aspects of true righteousness that comprise the heart of the Gospel. And we are examining them together in detail so that we might understand what God has done and how it is that He saves us. Let me read the text for you. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 21. But now... Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, 
being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time, that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Six aspects of true righteousness from this text. We noted previously that true righteousness comes from God, verse 21. True righteousness also comes through faith, the beginning of verse 22. It comes for all, the end of 22 and 23. Last time we noted that true righteousness comes by grace, Verse 24, and this morning we'll finish up that true righteousness comes because of Christ, beginning part of verse 25, and finally to vindicate God, the end of 25 and verse 26. So let's look here at verse 25. It says, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. True righteousness, that is righteousness, essential righteousness, a righteousness that will acquit us and enable us to stand in the presence of God comes not from our own works, verse 20, but it comes because of Christ, whom God displayed publicly, it says, as a propitiation in His blood through faith. Now, to understand what Paul is talking about here, this fifth aspect of true righteousness, we need to be reminded of something. And what we need to be reminded of is, unfortunately, the wrath of God. Now, that's something we have, we have looked at and we have looked at, I know, okay? So, I don't, there's no way around it. We're going to look at it again, okay? And it won't hurt us to look one more time, okay? But I promise I won't leave you there under the wrath of God this morning. I'll get you out of it, okay? But we need to look at it. The Bible declares that God is holy, and we begin there. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory, the prophet Isaiah says, Isaiah 6 and verse 3. God is holy, the thrice holy one. He is totally and completely distant from sin, from evil, from corruption, and its resultant filth and guilt. God distances Himself from it. It has no place in Him or before Him. God maintains and defends that holiness, that purity, by rejecting, fighting against, and destroying everything and everybody who offends, attacks, or seeks to undo His holiness. God is at war with evil. You can't read the Old Testament without coming to the awful, dreadful reality that God stands against everything that we are in our essential being. God is opposed to the wicked. We move to the New Testament, and there are two words that are used in the New Testament to translate wrath. 
translated English in the English wrath, there are two Greek words that are used. Thumas is the first word, and it is the less common of the words, and it, it speaks of a passionate anger or rage that arises quickly and then subsides again. The other word is orge. Orge. That is the more common New Testament word that is used for wrath when it speaks of God. Orge. That is a wrath that is a strong and settled opposition. It is something that builds slowly. It is like water building behind the dam as the pressure increases and eventually it bursts forth. That is the common New Testament word for the wrath of God. God's love is infinitely incomprehensible. Isn't that true? When we talk about the love of God, we, we know something of it, but we don't, can't get our arms all the way around it. We really can't fully comprehend it. Well, in a similar, similar way, so is His displeasure. So is His displeasure. So is His hatred, His anger, His wrath, His vengeance. It's hard for us to get our arms all the way around that and to understand exactly what it is. The writer of the Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31, Speaking of the wrath of God, he says it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We don't know exactly what it is, but it is a terrifying thing. Commentators have various definitions of the wrath of God that they write to try to help us get our arms around this difficult topic. John Murray, in his fine commentary on Romans, says that the wrath of God is a holy revulsion of His being against that which is a contradiction of His holiness. It is a revulsion within the very being of God. You can see how that would build up within Him. John Stott says that His wrath is, a, is the pure and perfect antagonism to evil. The old commentator Alva J. McLean says the wrath of God is His holy aversion to all that is evil and His purpose to destroy it. Charles Hodge, the Puritan divine, says His punitive justice, His determination to punish sin. Human wrath, human anger, is not analogous to divine wrath. We are mostly familiar with human wrath, aren't we? Human anger. The Bible even talks about a righteous indignation. The problem is so few of us have ever experienced it or seen it that we're not really even sure what that is. For the most part, human anger, human wrath is a product of our irrational and uncontrollable emotion. Isn't that true? It results from our pride. It results from spite. It results from a desire to have revenge. But the wrath of God is holy and entirely free of all of these toxins. The wrath of God stands apart, stands different from human anger. The wrath of God stresses the seriousness of sin. How serious is God about sin? He is so serious that He is enraged with sin and with sinners. Sin is not just a, a minor problem, just an imperfection, right? That God will simply overlook or forget about if enough time passes. 
Just look the other way, God, and that'll be enough. He cannot. It is a direct affront and confrontation of His holiness. So He cannot allow it to go unpunished. We think about our sin. We tend to think about it as not that big a deal, right? We tend to minimize it. We tend to excuse it. We tend to, to, to make excuses for ourselves. We were tired. We were grumpy. We, you know, this or that, or I was provoked, or whatever it is. And we birth, we flash forth in anger, and we're always minimizing our sin. We think not that God's wrath belongs on our sin, then we underestimate the gravity, the seriousness of our offense, and the holiness of His character. When we see ourselves for who we really are as the Scripture portrays ourselves, and we understand God for who He is, and holy and righteous and just, then it is a logical thing that He would be angry with sin. And angry with sinners. How angry is God? How angry is God with sinners? The Bible gives us an answer. God is so angry that He set forth His own Son as a propitiatory sacrifice. The prophet Isaiah, speaking hundreds and hundreds of years before, describes it this way. He says, Jesus was pierced through. He uses the pronoun he, but he's talking about Christ. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. How angry is God with our sin? Angry enough to beat his son to death publicly. Now, the Bible uses the word propitiation, or at least the New American Standard continues to use that word. Other translations have adopted other ways to translate it. Helasterion in the Greek. And, and we need to talk about this because this is an important term. I know it's not on the tip of your tongue. You don't go around and using it in everyday language, but I'll challenge you to use it this week. Okay, use it three times and it'll become yours. But this is a huge concept. This is an important understanding because it speaks about the heart of the Gospel. Helasterion, it, it means to conciliate or to appease or to placate. Someone who is offended. To turn away their anger by means of a gift. To turn away their anger by means of a gift. The word doesn't appear very often in the New Testament. It appears a few times in various verbal or noun forms. The exact form of the word which appears here appears in only one other place in the New Testament, which is Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 5. Hebrews 9, 5. The word is translated there and clearly and appropriately so as mercy seat. It's translated mercy seat. The mercy seat was the place within the Holy of Holies 
appearing before, between the, the tips of the wings of the cherubim above the Ark of the Covenant, right? Where the Ten Commandments, the two tablets of the law, were housed. And there upon that mercy seat, once per year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies with blood and he would sprinkle it upon the mercy seat. And what he would do in that is that he would symbolically bring a sacrifice before God so that when God looked down through to the tablets of the law contained within the ark and he saw the, the failures of his people against his law and his anger welled up, he would see the blood and his anger would be set aside. That was what is being communicated in that ritual, that ceremony. And thus, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Old Testament, we find this word hilasterion used 22 times to translate mercy seat. It's used regularly to translate this place, this mercy seat. So there's a strong tradition to, to understand what Paul's talking about here in Romans 3 and verse 25, where he says that God publicly displayed Christ as the mercy seat in his blood through faith. The tradition to see the reference here to the mercy seat is further strengthened when you notice verse 25 that God displayed publicly. You see it? Publicly. And those who understand the, the interpretation this way would say, well, in the Holy of Holies, it was, it was separated by the veil, right? And no one was able to go in. No one ever saw what went on in there. Only the high priest himself. And only he once a year. And they tie a cord around his ankle because if he messed up, God would strike him dead and they needed to drag his corpse out of there. So that which happened in private, in, in secret, if you will, was now public, made public through Christ. The access had been made available. The curtain had been torn open by virtue of the public crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the mercy seat which was inaccessible was now thrown wide open. So people see Paul is saying here in verse 25 of chapter 3 that Jesus was the New Testament fulfillment of that Old Testament type. Christ was the place where the final and ultimate blood was sprinkled in order to permanently cover over God's view of our sin. That's one interpretation. There is another interpretation. It's actually one that I like better here in verse 25 for propitiation. Helisterion. Linguistically, the word outside of its Old Testament usage uniformly means a gift designed to appease wrath. A gift designed to appease or placate or conciliate someone who is enraged with you. You give them a gift and you turn away their wrath. That is uniformly what the word means linguistically outside of its Old Testament usage. The other translation, or the, other, the way the word is translated in the book of Hebrews as mercy seat, I don't think necessarily follows over here into Romans because the book of Hebrews itself is dealing entirely with the Levitical cult. That is the tradition and sacrificial system and all the laws of the Old Testament Mosaic Law. When you come to the book of Romans, that's not the context at all. You have a different context. And so a word means what it means in its own context. And so in Hebrews, the context 
is the sacrificial system. Here in Romans, we're dealing with an entirely different context, one I'll get to in just a moment. Beyond that, to see the image of Christ as the mercy seat sprinkled with His own blood is a kind of a complicated image if you stop for a minute to try to think about that. He becomes the mercy seat and the sprinkling. That's hard to fathom. The context of Romans, this section of Romans, is wrath. The context is wrath. It begins way back in chapter 1, verse 18, right? Do you remember that? That was a long time ago. Okay. That'll take you all the way back to March. But in Romans 1.18, we began this whole section with Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And we begin this long section on the wrath of God. It's repeated in chapter 2, verse 5, storing up wrath for yourself. It's repeated in chapter 2, verse 8, that uh, if you do not obey the truth, but you obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation will come upon you. And so this idea of wrath is flowing through this whole section of Romans. Here in chapter 3, verse 25, I think is the other bookend. Chapter 1, verse 18 begins the section on wrath. It's one bookend. The other bookend that ends the section is chapter 3, verse 25, where he says God publicly displayed Christ as a propitiation, that is, as a, a gift to take away His wrath in His own blood through faith. And so I think you have wrath at the beginning and wrath at the end. It's for these reasons that I think it's best to see the crucifixion here as the public display of the bloody gift of Jesus Christ turning away the wrath of God. Jesus Himself said on that cross, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? The wrath of God was residing upon the Son. Why is propitiation necessary? Why is it necessary to offer a gift to avert, to turn away, to appease, to conciliate the wrath of God? The pagan answer is that the gods are bad-tempered, that they're capricious, that they're subject to fits of passion and jealousy and rage. The biblical answer is because God's holy anger against the sin of humanity and its resultant evil. Who does the propitiation? Who is it that offers the gift that turns away the wrath? The pagan answer is, we do. We do. We're the ones who have offended God, so we are the ones who must offer the gift to turn away His wrath. So millions of people, millions, hundreds of millions of people all over the world offer gifts to their gods. They're gods that are really nothing more than human beings blown big with all the foibles and problems of mankind. So people offer fruit, sweets, animals, money, and in the extreme, their own children. All to avert, all to turn away, all to appease 
the wrath of their pagan gods. The Christian answer of who does the propitiation is right here in verse 25. Take a look at it. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation. Who takes the initiative to turn away the wrath of the Father? The Father Himself. God takes the initiative. He propitiates His own wrath. He offers the gift of His own Son to be a sacrifice of atonement. Apostle John says it this way, 1 John 4.10, And this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Even in this context of Romans, look over to chapter 5 and verse 8. Paul says there, But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Who takes the initiative to turn away the wrath of God? God does. God does. And that, beloved, is a huge difference between biblical Christianity and all pretenders. The reason man can't do it, verse 20, is because by the works of law, no flesh shall be justified. You've got nothing to offer. You cannot bring a gift. There is nothing that you can offer, not the fruit of your body, but the sin of your soul. There is nothing to be brought before God to turn away His righteous anger. He must do it Himself. That is the Gospel. Because of God's great love, He propitiated His own holy wrath through the gift of His own Son. The One who took our place, bore our guilt, died our death. God saves us from Himself by giving of Himself. That's the Gospel. That is the Gospel. It is from God. It is received through faith. It is for all. It is by grace. It is because of Christ. And finally, it is to vindicate God. Why does He do all of this? It is to vindicate Himself. This was to demonstrate, verse 25, His righteousness. Because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time, that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You ever wondered about this? How can God remain just and not punish you and I? How can God maintain His justice in the universe and not destroy us in hell as we deserve? Paul takes that up here. Have you ever wondered as you read through the Old Testament... You ever wondered about those people? You read about all those saints that are so flawed? And they're called righteous. They're called the people of God, right? They enter into His presence. They stand before Him. Before him. I mean, why did God destroy them for their sin? Well, some say, well, it was the sacrificial system. 
I mean, all they had to do was offer a lamb, and then, you know, that was what it took, and then God forgave them. Oh, really? That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that the, the blood of bulls and goats never took away sin. It is impossible to take away sin through the death of an animal. Furthermore, the Bible says, Hebrews 10, verses 3 and 4, that in those sacrifices there was a reminder of sins year by year. That is, the people then knew what you should know today, if you're familiar with the New Testament, that it never took away sin. They didn't think it took away sin. We know that it didn't take away sin. It was never adequate to cover for them. Their sin was never permanently taken care of. It was obvious that God was holding back. God was passing over their sins. God was looking the other way, as it were. He was not giving them the full extent of the righteousness and the justice that they deserved. For example, in the day you eat of the fruit, you will die. Did they die? Yes and no. They died spiritually. They were cut off from God. Adam lived 930 years. How could Adam stand and Eve stand in the presence of God after that? What enabled them to stand before God for those hundreds of years? Why didn't he destroy them? How about our friend Abraham? When confronted by a pagan king, he said, here, take my sister, Sarah. Oh, wait a minute, she's my wife. But I don't have to tell you that. Deeply flawed men. How about our favorite? The man after God's own heart. Committed adultery with another man's wife and then arranged for his murder to cover it up. How about the average Jewish person? The one that we don't know anything about. The one who was defiled in thought, word, and deed. How is it that God passed over their sins? Why is it that He didn't give them what they deserved? Paul says that the answer is because He was doing it for a time in order to make a display later. He was postponing the sacrifice or the satisfaction rather of His law. He was holding back the demands of His holy justice. In the process, He created a problem for Himself. Actually, a very large problem. The very large problem is that He subjected Himself to the charge that He was unjust. His own righteousness could be called into account. All right, He passed over sins previously committed. He didn't punish them as they deserved. Now, someone might say, well, why doesn't God just, why didn't He just keep passing over them then? If He could do it for a time, why not do it forever? Why not just keep doing it? It would make Him unjust. Well, why couldn't He just punish them a little? 
You know, kind of give them a slap on the wrist and let them go their way. Kind of like the judge I read about up in Vermont here, the end of last year, the beginning of this. Some of you are probably familiar with that. It was all over the, the news. There was a judge up there who allowed a convicted pedophile to walk away with 60 days probation. How's that feel? Wells up within you, doesn't it? That's not, that's not just. Justice must be served. This criminal must pay for his crime. How can this judge let him go? 60 days probation. How can God let people go? How come He doesn't punish to the full extent their sin deserves? If God were not to punish, what He would do is ultimately lend credence to the lie out there that it doesn't really matter what you do. So God must punish. There are eternal consequences. God is holy and righteous. But He doesn't keep time the way you and I do. He doesn't keep time the way we do. His timetable is different than ours. Notice how this whole section, verse 21, begins. But now. Do you see that? But now. In the past, God was operating in one way. That is, He was, he was overlooking in His forbearance the full penalty that the law required, the, the weight of His justice and holiness required. For a time, He was overlooking it. He was winking even, you might say, at sin. But now, in the fullness of time, Galatians 4.4, God sent forth His Son, right? Born of a woman, born under the law. Now, Paul says, God is going to set it right. Universally, Righteousness will now be demonstrated. His character will be displayed for what it is. The charge against Him will have to be lifted because God no longer is going to overlook sin. Full retribution will be exacted. Where? The cross of Jesus Christ. The cross of Jesus Christ. Notice verse 26. There are some commentators, by the way, who say, I just insert this for you. They say that this passing over refers to, to God's overlooking the, the sin of the, of the pagan nations, the Gentile nations. But I don't think that's what he's talking about here at all. I think what he's talking about is God overlooking the sin of His own people before the cross. The reason I believe that is in verse 26, he says, For a demonstration, I say, of the righteousness at the present time, that He might be just and the justifier, the one who has faith in Jesus. He is just and He is the justifier of a certain group of people. Those who have faith in Jesus. Now, you might be scratching your head and you're saying, well, wait a minute, David. How do they have faith in Jesus when they all lived before Jesus came? Glad you asked that question. The short answer is that they were looking forward with eyes of faith to the one to come. They were looking forward with eyes of faith to the one to come. To the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. John 1.29, you remember that? When Jesus walked by, John the Baptist says, Behold, 
The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They were looking for the coming one. Peter says in 1 Peter 1, Verses 10 and 11, he says, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiry, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Prophet Isaiah was looking for the coming one, the one on whom all of their iniquity would be laid. People before the cross were satisfied before God the same way that those of us who live after the cross. It is by the death of Jesus Christ. They look forward with faith to the coming one. We look forward with faith to the one who came. You've got a lot more revelation than they do. You're thus more accountable than they are. But we were both saved in the same way. Why was it necessary for Christ to die on a cross? Why couldn't the Jews have just merely stoned Him to death in some out-of-the-way place, some corner of the temple ground? Why couldn't they have drug Him away? They did at night, right? They captured Him in the garden. They drug Him away, gave Him a secret trial. Why didn't they just kill Him right there? Why did they have to go before the Roman authorities? Well, it was the law, but the law never stopped them before. They killed Stephen without regard to the law. Why did they turn him over for a Roman crucifixion? So that God would make a public display, a spectacle before the city gates of Jerusalem. According to the text here, that God would display him publicly. Do you see it? As a propitiation in his blood. Christ had to die publicly before the eyes of the world. Because at the cross of Jesus Christ, God vindicated His righteous character. Sin was fully punished. Justice in the universe was restored publicly. And God could display the most amazing thing. In verse 26, He would be just and the justifier. The one who has faith in Jesus. He could remain holy and just and acquit guilty sinners at the same time. What a beautiful truth. The psalmist says, Psalm 85, verse 10, at the cross, loving kindness and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed one another. How does a holy God receive into His presence those who by nature are unholy without destroying them? The answer is that the death of Christ has propitiated, has turned aside His anger. When He sees us, He sees the righteousness of Christ wrapped around us and all of our guilt, all of our filth laid on Christ and punished there on Him. Jesus has become our substitute. How do you receive a gift like this? How is it received? Luke chapter 13. Would you turn there? Page 1046. Luke 13. 
I'm sorry, Luke 18, verse 13. Actually, we'll, we'll back it up a little more. Luke 18. Verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, that is one whose outward righteousness was perfect. And the other a tax gatherer, that is one whose outward righteousness was entirely defiled. The Pharisee stood and was praying and thus to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax gatherer. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax gatherer, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but he was beating his breast, saying, God, be propitiated for me, the sinner. That is what it literally says. God, be propitiated for me. The sinner. God, have your anger turned away for me, for I am a sinner. I tell you, verse 14, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, but he who humbles himself shall be exalted. How do you receive this great gift? You humble your heart. You call out to God. You beseech Him to be merciful to you and to count Christ as your righteousness. To look on His death as the gift that turns away the anger that is due you. The Bible says that by faith we receive this reality. And Christ Himself takes residence within us and we become a child of God. If you have never called out to Christ in this way, your mind is filled with truth, you know all about the Bible perhaps, but you've never made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ. You've never called out to Him to be merciful to you, to be propitiated for you. It's always been for others. You know, Jesus died for the sins of the world and it's always this big everybody kind of thing. It's never personalized. You need to personalize it. You need to understand that He died in your place if you will receive Him by faith. Let's pray. Our Father, thank You for the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ who turned away your wrath on behalf of His people. Lord God, may You make this truth ring within our hearts. Help us to grab a hold of it by faith. Help us to believe it. We trust not in anything that we have done nor what we are. We trust only in Christ alone. In His name, His name we pray. Amen. After we finish singing here, we'll have some folks as we...
always do over here by this lighted cross. They're there to help you if you have any questions, spiritual matters, concerns. You'll come and you'll speak with them. They can open the Scriptures and help you to find your way. God bless you this morning.